Welcome everybody. Good to see you. Thank you all for coming. I'm Anne-Marie McEwen. I'm the MC for the event this afternoon, which is Money to Burn, Politics in the Pub, presented by the BMUC, which is the Blue Mountains Unions and Community. This is Kerry Cook, our president. And um, yeah, Kerry's got a bit of a, an injury, so I'm kicking off. <laughs> uh, yeah. So thanks all for coming. Um, I'd just like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which we are gathered this afternoon, the Darug and Gundungara peoples, and pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging. And um, you know, we're with them in solidarity with the voice to parliament. Yay. <laughs> Um, our guests this afternoon are Kim de Goldbrick, Mayor Mark Greenhill and Mike Holland and I thank them very, very much for um, giving up their time. This would have to be the busiest day of the year, I think. There's just so much going on, so I really appreciate their time and effort in coming along this afternoon. Uh, now, the topic of the uh, politics in the pub is money to burn. We were going to schedule this um, back in May 2020, following the fires, but COVID um, got in the way of that. So it's sort of, I think we invited Kim back then to, to actually be one of the speakers and it couldn't happen due to the pandemic. So we're having it today. Um, and it's really about bushfires, um, lessons from the Black Summer fires, um, there's so many issues around the fires, you know, funding of the recovery, climate change, um, uh, the issues of uh, workforce to manage um, the national parks, um, communication between the different firefighting um, agencies. Um, so, you know, response to the fires uh, from various stakeholders, the effects of the uh, fires on the community up here of the Blue Mountains, and also having to manage the recovery of the community, the roads, the landslides, and the national park. So, so many issues to explore um, around this topic of the bushfires. Um, our insightful speakers will, will explore these issues and, uh, and themes, and other themes and issues will emerge, I'm sure. So it'll be good for us to have you know, some mental exercise and to um, really try to grapple with all the fires. I'd um, like to also thank the Family Hotel. They give us this room for free, and um, they're a great supporter of the BMUC and uh, events that we run. So if you'd like to have a drink or stay for dinner and support the hotel, that would be wonderful as well. So our guest speakers, not in this order, are Mayor Mark Greenhill, Kim de Goldbrick and Mike Holland. Kicking off is Kim. Uh, now Kim, as a youngster, was interested in wildlife and spent much time camping and in the bush. He was an amateur herpetologist and always got into trouble for bringing snakes home. In his student days, Kim had a range of jobs, including dish pig, driving taxis and delivering furniture. But after a nasty taxi accident, he decided, he did a risk assessment and decided that he'd stick to the dish pig job. It was safer. 
He started with the National Parks and Wildlife Service as a seasonal ranger in Kosciuszko National Park in 1980 and loved it. He became a permanent ranger in the Central West, then worked as the area manager Oberon. He was there for 30 years managing 250,000 hectares of the Greater Blue Mountains World Heritage Area, including the catchment lands for the Warragamba Dam. In 2018, he took a redundancy and started working as an organiser for the PSA, the Public Sector Association. He returned to fight fires as a volunteer in the 2019-20 fire season, and that was his 40th fire season. Whilst in covert isolation in 2020, Kim helped to write the PSA submission into the Royal Commission on the 2020 fires. Some of the PSA recommendations have been acted upon. He continues to work for the PSA as an organiser and insists with PSA media on the National Parks and Wildlife Service and the environment. Please welcome Kim de Gobrick. Thanks very much, Anne-Marie, lovely to be here. Um, I'm going to have to refer to some notes because there's just a few um, statistics I might want to uh, uh, go to. Um, <clears throat> so with regards to, to the fires, I just want to start back in, um, in 2019. And some of you will remember what you were doing and what you were thinking um, back then. But we were in a period of protracted drought and uh, quite a severe drought and it was having the, uh, the usual uh, uh, influence on the, um, uh, the uh, landscapes across New South Wales. Uh, the place was basically cooking and it was curing out all the grasses, all the fuels were curing out and becoming a real problem. Um, and uh, I used to ask myself at the time, I finished with National Parks and I was working for the PSA, but I did wonder what uh, what the government was doing at the time, what the thoughts were. Uh, it was clear on many to many people across the state that it was going to be a huge fire season uh, coming up and fires had already broken out on the north coast and the fire season goes from north to south in Australia. So it was already starting in the winter of 2019, basically heading our way. Um, I asked myself what the governments were doing about it. Um, well, we all know that Scomo was going on holidays in Hawaii, so he was he was uh, uncontactable. But most importantly for me, as a uh, ex New South Wales public servant and working for national parks, I wondered what the state government was doing. What the state state government was doing was um, basically getting rid of as many public servants as they possibly could. So you had uh, you had the um, um, uh, three, uh, four, uh, three combat agencies, sorry, four combat agencies. You had National Parks, um, Forestry Corporation, uh, Rural Fire Service, and Fire and Rescue, and basically they were being gutted. That's what was happening. I think the primary and one of the most important things about fires is being prepared for fires. And basically the state government and its agencies were caught napping. And at no fault of the, the, the agencies, I mean, this government had a lot to answer for with what they were up to um, uh, leading up to the 2019-2025 season. 
So what they were up to was, was, was uh, restructuring both the Rural Fire Service and the National Parks and Wildlife Service. Not good timing at all. Now what I would have thought was would have been happening in the, in the winter of uh, 2019 was that the head of government would be having a round table with the fire authorities and saying, we can see this on the horizon, it's coming to get us. What are we going to do about it? What do you need? What resources do you need to fight what's coming? Because it was going to be the mother of all fire seasons. Um, that didn't happen. But what did happen, as I said, was restructures were ongoing. The Rural Fire Service uh, at that time had 200 vacancies. Uh, National Parks had over 100. Fire and Rescue had over 400 vacancies. Um, many of the experienced staff, including myself, who had uh, fought many fires, myself in the Blue Mountains, the Greater Blue Mountains World Heritage Area, but many of those that experience and expertise had left the departments. They'd gone. Um, it was the age of ages and also, so anyone over 50 years of age had a target on their back, basically. So, well, what happened? Uh, <coughs> what happened up here, obviously, was uh, a series of um, uh, lightning strikes. Um, and when you have multiple ignitions, you've got some real problems uh, dealing with all of them. And uh, we had the Ruin Castle fire, as you would recall. We had the Gospers Mountain fire, and we had the Green Wattle Creek fire. Now, the Green Wattle Creek fire was down in my old patch. Um, and I knew that area pretty well, so they sent me down there to work on that fire, um, and uh, while others fought these other fires to the north. Um, when you get lightning strikes, I mean, you probably know that the, the Greater Blue Mountains World Heritage Area is in the vicinity of 1.3 million hectares. It's vast. It goes from the Southern Highlands to Singleton in the north, so it's, it's quite a large area. So, um, and basically, uh, uh, there wasn't the preparedness that really was required uh, to tackle those fires and the other fires burning around the state. Virtually the whole of the tableland was on fire and then they had the big uh, Duns Road fire down in Kosciuszko National Park. And um, um, some of those started on park and some of those started off park. Um, I guess what was required, and I'll, I'll talk about the recommendations coming out of the Royal Commission and the commissions into the fires and that, but what we really needed was um, to, to fight those remote uh, fires, the fires um, uh, from lightning strikes in remote locations, we needed helicopters and crews for those helicopters, which we call RAF crews, remote area fire teams. We needed as many as possible. We needed to get into those ignition points while they were small and put them out before they came and mega fire. Well, unfortunately, that didn't happen. We didn't have the resources to do it. Um, and by way of example, when we talk about um, uh, fighting those sorts of ignitions, you have to have your resources strategically located around the landscape, the national parks or whatever. So the national parks would have a helicopter at Blackheath, one at Glenbrook, one up at Ralston for the Wallamai fires and you'd have crews sitting by those aircraft, the RAF teams, ready to go. Now, in America, uh, and I had, the, I had the experience of being deployed to America in 2003 to fight fires, every time they had a mission uh, out to a fire, if it was a lightning strike, they'd take two aircraft. 
two helicopters. One would be uh, ready to go and bucket those lightning strikes, and the other uh, aircraft would con contain a crew of firefighters who would either winch in or be repelled in to mop up the, the work done by the, uh, the aerial bucketing. We don't have that in Australia. And um, uh, when you think about uh, priorities, the resources like aircraft and what have you, um, human resources, aircraft, firefighters, everyone has to consider, or the fire bosses have to consider what the priorities are. And the priorities are always life, property, and then other, other uh, uh, structures and assets. But most importantly, in these particular fires, we have the Warragamba Special Area just to our south, uh, and the catchment lands, which basically filter the water that goes into the stored water for four million people in Sydney. So it's a, it's a, it's a critical uh, piece of in infrastructure. Um, and we have the wilderness area with all its um, amazing flora and fauna. When you have a fire like the Ruined Castle fire, you have, if you don't have the, the, the requisite resources required, you have to suck in all the resources from, let's just say, to this point, the Greater Blue Mountains World Heritage Area, and focus on a fire that could impact on a township like Katoomba. And that's what was happening. And as Nick will attest to, as he's told me a couple of times, um, he heard multiple uh, helicopters flying around his place, um, and he knew what they were doing. What they were doing was they were, they were protecting life and property. What they weren't doing, because they didn't have the resources, was being out in the wilderness areas, taking care of these small lightning strikes before they all joined together and turned into a, um, a, uh, a mega fire. <coughs> what did happen, as you well know, is that's what happened. Basically, the Gostas Mountain fire, the uh, Grand Model Creek fire, and the Ruin Castle fire, they all joined together and um, you, you know what happened there. It was pretty horrific. Um, so I guess uh, moving on from that, there was a number of commissions of inquiry. There was a Royal Commission. Um, uh, plenty of submissions were made to those inquiries. But I, I, I had the, uh, the, uh, the privilege of being locked up in uh, COVID isolation at the time. This was, this was uh, near, near its end, but at the time when they were looking for people to, uh, well, the PSA wanted to do a submission, they wanted someone to help write it. I said, well, I'm, I'm stuck in this hotel room for two weeks. I'm more than happy to help out. So instead of going crazy, I, I, I got all my thoughts down about the uh, the uh, the fire season and what we what we needed in a um, in a in a sense for uh, putting out those fires or doing a better job in the future. You know, and it's 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 pretty obvious to me and to many people that were involved in the fires. We needed additional firefighters, additional vehicles, um, additional aircraft. There were problems with the radios and the frequencies between the four combat agencies. And a lot of times the combat agencies in the, in the past couldn't even talk to each other. It's a little bit better now, but one of our prime recommendations was that they sorted out the radio frequencies so that everyone could talk to each other across the fire ground. It's, it's critical, as you would appreciate, for, every, for everyone's safety and for a better outcome on the fires to be effective and efficient on the fire grounds with limited resources. Um, so where we went from there <clears throat> um, was uh, after the submissions were looked at and that we did wonder 
uh, how those um, submissions would be looked at and whether there would be some sound outcomes. Um, I do know that uh, there was an announcement uh, by the National Parks soon after the uh, submissions, as soon after the recommendations were accepted by the Royal Commission, was that they were going to put on 125 firefighters. Well, they did. They put on those firefighters. They didn't get any aircraft. There was virtually nil increase uh, to aircraft. The Royal Fire Service usually cross-eyes all its aircraft. They probably put on a few additional ones, but specifically the uh, what they call the LATs or the large air tankers. You would have seen them on at least on the television. Uh, they're quite handy for laying retardant lines to stop the spread of fire. They're currently operating as we speak um, at Taralga, Kurrawila Fire, which is happening at the moment, and the fire up at uh, Hillan, which is uh, the Alpha Road fire, which is pretty much under control. But um, so uh, the National Parks didn't have an increase in aircraft, and I have to explain this to you that the National Parks had about, in the vicinity of three or four hundred remote area fire crew. The Rural Fire Service don't have many at all, and neither do the other agencies. That, uh, forestry has a few, obviously rural uh, fire and rescue don't, um, because they focus on uh, structural fires. So it begs the question why they wouldn't increase the number of aircraft uh, uh, for the National Parks and Wildlife Service. They now have a crew of 1,275 firefighters, but because of the loss of uh, experience in the, uh, in the restructures, they currently have 400 firefighters under supervision. That's 400 firefighters, that's a third of their firefighting force under supervision. And I think it's absolutely shameful that that happens. But the way they recruited was they recruited um, because um, the state government was saying we want as many boots on the ground, so, you know, pay them nothing and get them on board, you know. So they, they, they created uh, this um, field officer general classification, paid them initially about $37,000. No experience, no qualifications, no expertise, no skills. And they were out there um, doing their best on the fire ground. So, um, really leaving themselves open there in terms of uh, work, health and safety and uh, rules. It's going fast. Um, the Rural Fire Service had 1,300 staff and, um, and they've got about a 20% vacancy rate at the moment. And uh, there's, at the moment there's not enough vehicles to go around uh, in uh, national parks. Uh, there's issues with safety of uh, vehicles. They don't have fire curtains, they don't have sprinklers, they don't have defibrillators. Um, and uh, when you've got a whole bunch of people trying to communicate with each other, with each other so you have all the, the four combat agencies plus interstate crews, the Americans and the Canadians, communications can be a bit of a, a uh, disaster. So um, I'll just uh, finish off by saying um, what now. So the Greater Blue Mountains World Heritage Area, luckily we've got some really good rain after those fires. And, and the regrowth is significant, it's coming back very well. But with, with regrowth comes risk, so you have to appreciate that there, there, there will be more fires. Uh, luckily our flora and fauna are very um, adaptable and resilient. They can look after themselves, they know where to go during fires. Even though uh, there was quite a lot of wildlife um, destroyed, um, uh, I'm happy to say that some of the projects I was working on, like the brush tile rock wallabies at Janola Caves and that, they survived and, and they're coming back, so that's really good. Um, 
some of the some of the koalas, uh, which were actually taken out of the path of the fires, uh, out at um, out near Janolan, have been returned to uh, their habitat, and they're doing really well. In terms of the current situation, I mean, we can all see what's happening at the moment. There's approximately 30 fires burning in New South Wales at the moment. It's it's not obviously it's not as bad as. Uh, 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 2019, 2020, the weather's going to cool down soon, although it seems like we're in the middle of summer at the moment, and hopefully it will rain. But at the moment, the Tarralga fire is about 4,000 hectares, the Alpha Road fire up at Hill End burnt 20,000 hectares, um, and uh, the, fuel, the, the fuels or the grasses and, and shrubs continue to cure out, so we will continue to see more fires. Um, I'm just really optimistic um, to think that uh, uh, if there is a uh, change in government uh, in the coming week or so, that they will look more favor favourably on the combat agencies that are tasked to fight fires and will look at resourcing them and increase their resources for uh, future fire seasons. Thank you so much, Kim. That was incredible amount of information and your experience um you know really just you've got so much to offer you need to be <laughs> next to the premier or somewhere you know in high, high high places giving them advice on what to do and all those practical suggestions and the resourcing that is required is unbelievable i'd just like to introduce now mike holland our next speaker and if you've got any questions just try and keep them um, in mind for later on um, so Mike Holland, our next speaker. Mike first joined um, a union in 1968, so he's a long-standing um, comrade. He was an Australian Workers' Union member working with New South Wales Main Roads in the mid-1970s, where he obtained a certificate for in working the stop-go sign and in boiling the billy. <laughs> He drifted into law in 1979 and was a practicing lawyer and then a legal academic until 2016. He was branch president of the National Tertiary Education Union, the NTEU, at the College of Law for six years and is still a member of the NTEU. Mike is an occasional commentator on legal matters and corruption issues on rights, rorts and rants, which is the BMUC's Friday radio show. 89.1 FM from 4, 4 to 6. He, he, so he contributes to our sessions of rights, rorts and rants. Thank you, Mike. Thanks very much, Anne-Marie. In June 2022, the New South Wales ICAC held an inquiry into whether pork barrelling was unlawful and whether it could be considered corrupt conduct under the existing ICAC Act. Now, we all remember the uh, colour-coded charts in the Minister's offices identifying coalition seats and swinging seats in the Morrison government's time and so that they could splash cash around before the elections. Well, while they were doing that, their New South Wales coalition counterparts were at it as well. Um, and the catalyst, I think, for the ICAC inquiry really lays at the feet of the former Premier of New South Wales, Gladys Berejiklian. Because in 2016, the New South Wales Government, you, you will recall, forced a lot of councils to amalgamate 
and a lot of them were unhappy. So the government said, look, what we'll do is we'll give you, we'll allocate $252 million in council grants in a program called the Stronger Community Grants Program. Now, you'd normally think that uh, when there's a grants program, it would be administered by the relevant government department, in this case, the Department of Local Government. But it turned out that uh, the eligible projects uh, and councils that were allocated or identified were picked by the Premier, Clavis Berejiklian, in her office, the Deputy Premier, John Barillaro, and the Minister of Local Government at the time, Paul Toole. Um, so the, these grant decisions by what I call the Gang of Three were sent through to the department with little or no information about the basis of either why the council got the, the funding or why the project was selected. And you might recall that the senior policy advisor to Gladys Berejiklian in her department told a parliamentary inquiry into this grants process that what she did at the end was she shredded all her working notes and she deleted the electronic records of the, of the grants process from the, the uh, Premier's office. Now, under the State Archives Act, it's an offence to destroy government uh, documents and it's difficult really to fathom how the most senior policy advisor in the, pre in the Premier's own office didn't know what her obligations were about preserving records. Now, almost all of the councils that received the grants, 96% were in coalition-held seats. And, of course, that caused a stink. And it was investigated initially by a state parliamentary inquiry. And I just want to quote for you some of the comments that Gladys Berejiklian made to this inquiry about Port Barrowley. She said, Governments make commitments to the community in order to curry favour. I think that's part of the political process, whether we like it or not. And then she went on to say this. She said, There was no issue with using taxpayers' money to help the coalition win seats. And she said, It's not an illegal practice. She said, That's what our process is, rightly or wrongly. Now, who was the treasurer at the time of the Council Grants Program? It was Dominic Ferrite. Anyway, in 2022, there was an inquiry by the New South Wales Auditor General into this same um, um, grants program. And she found that, firstly, the assessment process and approval lacked integrity. The program guidelines weren't published. Imagine that. People were applying for a grant and there's no guidelines. She said there was no merit assessment carried out in relation to the selected process, projects, and the government decided, she said, to prioritise the funds for councils that had worked constructively with the government through the 2016 merger process. Um, now, I now want to turn to... Um, oh, then further, after that, Gladys Berejiklian also appeared at ICAC in the inquiry into her former boyfriend, Daryl Maguire. And I'd also like to take you to a quote that she said to ICAC. She said, it's a regular political activity that governments try to win seats and try to keep their seats. She said, so I don't think it's a surprise to anybody in or around government to know that we threw money at seats in order to keep them. So we've got a clear understanding now of what Gladys Berejiklian's view, views are on Port Barrowing. No issue with using taxpayers' money to help the government with seats. It's not illegal, and we throw money at seats in order to keep them. Now, I want to turn now to Gladys Berejiklian's apprentice, 
John Barillaro. When John Barillaro did his certificate four in Port Barrowing, he, he must have graduated with first class honours because in 2020-2021, he took Port Barrowing in New South Wales to a new level of political bastardry. Because what he did is he diverted the bushfire recovery grant money destined to go to people and communities devastated by the Black Summer fires to spend it on 21 projects in coalition seats and on one project in an independent electorate. So well-deserved and needy electorates, including the Blue Mountains, uh, and we'll hear shortly from the Lord Mayor Mark Grenville about what happened there, they missed out, they got nothing from the Deputy Premier. And that's not your average, that's not car parks, broads, that's not um, sports fields or club upgrades, that's taking real money from people in the community that had a massive need at the time. So that's taking Port Barrowing in New South Wales to a new level. Now, I'm going to explain to you how it all came about. Following the, the, the Black Summer fires, the Commonwealth and the States got together and they promised to spend over 800 odd million dollars for bushfire uh, recovery programs, but on the basis of a 50-50 uh, split. Now, the state government, understandably, wanted to accelerate the first round of grants, and there was $100,000 involved in that. So they encouraged local communities to apply, and some, there were some project guidelines that were published, and the Blue Mountain City Council made an application, and I understand that the Blue Mountain City Council were told by the Department for Regional and New South Wales officials that the application was a very professional submission. A very professional submission that got nothing. <laughs> and we now know why a very professional submission got nothing. Because the New South Wales Auditor General carried out an investigation of the process and handed down her findings in a report published on the 23rd of January, just seven weeks ago. And she made a really interesting point at the beginning of her findings. She said that there were guidelines for administering grants in New South Wales. She said they were published in 2012 by the Department of Premier and Cabinet and they were called the Good Practice Guide to Grants Administration. And that was a guide to ensuring that grants administration was performed consistently across all uh, areas of grants programs. And it also gave an outline of what we say probably the best practice covering uh, grants process over its whole life, life cycle from the initial advertising of projects right through to the granting and monitoring of the spending of, of money. Now, although uh, the thing was that compliance with the good practice program wasn't cons compulsory, but she points out it was in place at the time the bushfire grants were being uh, chosen and administered. And I'll come back to that because it's a really important point. The department initially identified 445 uh, potential projects, but of that 445, they only assessed 164. So 281 projects missed out, 281 communities and groups and organisations made applications, and the problem was there was no documentation re recording the rationale for not even considering those applications. So the first alarm bells are starting to ring. I'm getting, I'm getting the bell in before Nick rings it. Um, now, enter stage left, the then Deputy Premier of New South Wales, John Barillaro, who, believe it or not, 
was the minister in charge of the Department of Regional New South Wales at the time. So with $100 million to splash about, Barilaro, like a kid in a candy shop, he requested that his department send the selected projects to his office. Now they sent off a package of 35 projects and Barilaro's office sent back a package of 27 with nine of the original 35 excluded and he added one. There was one that wasn't even in there and he added it in. Now, he also applied a $1 million minimum threshold for the projects to be eligible. And that $1 million threshold requirement wasn't in the department's guidelines. Um, and the department then adopted Barilaro's uh, threshold. That's the second alarm bell because when we look at the documentation, that, or there is no documentation, the department made no records of any discussions or approvals in relation to this adopted threshold. Now, what was the result of the threshold change? A number of the shortlisted projects in areas that were highly impacted by the fire, including all the shortlisted projects located in Labor-held electorates, were excluded without any reasons being given. Later on, they made up some reasons, but at the time, there were no reasons. So of the 22 fast-track projects identified by Barilaro, 21 were in Liberal National Party electorates, and one was in an, in an independent seat. So Barilaro, the master's apprentice, then justified his first-class honours award because he didn't have to resort to shredding the working notes or deleting any of the electronic records because there weren't any. <laughs> um, uh, so there was nothing covered by the State Archives Act. Now, I guess he thought that was smart. But that wasn't smart enough to deceive the Auditor General. Because what all lawyers do when they're preparing a case, they not only look at all the facts and evidence that's available to them, they also look and see what's not there that should be there. And that's what the Auditor General picked up, and that's what she, she found when she delved into the project. She found the department didn't effectively administer a fast-track stream because the administration process, she said, lacked integrity because the guidelines were insufficient. She said there was a lack of transparency and consistency in the whole assessment process. There were significant gaps in the documentation of the decision-making. The $1 million threshold, first of all, was applied without any documented reason. Secondly, was not part of the program guidelines. And thirdly, it was applied late in the assessment process without any reasonable justification. Now, I come back now to the good practice guide because she quotes it, and it's in plain language. There's no legalese or jargon there. It simply says this. Grant decisions must be made on the basis of the criteria. Isn't that easy to follow? <laughs> So she then said that introducing the $1 million criterion late in the process compromised the integrity of the program and led to an inconsistent grants administration process. And the effect of applying the $1 million minimum threshold resulted in three things. The exclusion of nine projects, uh, including all projects in Labor held electorates and also including in the Blue Mountains area. So how do we know that the Blue Mountains 
Uh, sorry, that the labour held areas were excluded. Well, he was a bit of a paper trailer, a little tiny one. Remember, I said that the government, that the department sent 35 projects over to the deputy premier's office. Accompanying each project was a note on which electorate those projects were in. <laughs> and the Auditor General asked this very important question. She said, why would they include the electorate for each project when that wasn't intended to be a relevant part of the assessment process? And as a result, we know the Blue Mountains were excluded by this $1 million threshold that came from Barillaro's office. That's pork barrelling at the worst. I'll just wrap it up with a little bit of extra information I've discovered in the last the last week to the sorry saga. The bushfire grants decisions went before the New South Wales Cabinet Expenditure Review Committee. Now the treasurer at the time, oh, yeah, Dominic, he was not he was the chair of the committee and he was treasurer at the time. Now he was asked just recently whether about all this and what, what was going on. And he said, look, these reviews, he said, they're just based on treasury advice in relation to grants. And ultimately, he said, it's the responsibility of the actual minister. But he was pressed further um, on whether Barilaro had taken to the cabinet committee a request to change the funding threshold to above a million dollars. And he said, I can't recall. Oh. He says, oh, I'll need to check. And so far, it, I don't think he's got back to anyone on that. Thanks very much. Thank you, Mike. What a great synthesis of a lot of information into a, a, a you know manageable 15 minutes that we could all follow and understand. So thank That's you very much, because I know it's a lot of information there. and. Um, it's not for the unwary to delve in there, so thank you so much. So I'd like to introduce Mark Greenhill, our Mayor. Um, Mark was apparently an, an initial um, Deputy or Vice President of the BMUC when it was first started. Um, so go right back to the beginning of this organisation. And um, Mark's been a Blue Mountain City Councillor for 20 years, 10 of which he has been the Mayor. And in 2016, he received the Order of Australia for services to local government and the Blue Mountains community. He has a family and a full-time corporate career in Sydney, as well as attending to his council and mayoral duties in the evenings and on weekends. Um, so there must be very long days. Mark's years of being the Blue Mountains uh, Mayor has, have been dominated by two massive bushfire events. Uh, in 2013, the fires in the Blue Mountains caused the loss of nearly 200 homes, and the 2019-20 fires affected over 80% of the Blue Mountains National Park and destroyed over 20 homes. And that was followed by rain events, which imp impacted the um, the land, causing um, you know lots of damage to our roads and, and landslides and that sort of thing as well. And um, and then also there was COVID-19. So Mark brings a council perspective on the fires and recovery to our discussion this afternoon. Thank you, Mark. Uh, what I want to do basically is speak very consistently um, about what Mike told you, but from an insider perspective, because I was the one submitting the grants. 
I mean, the staff wrote them, but they went in under my name. And uh, a lot of the communication that occurred with senior public servants, federal and state, because one of the things that's forgotten here is that that, fund, that program was jointly funded, federal and state, and I had some interesting phone calls from federal public servants at the time as well. But the perspective I want to give is a perspective of someone having been there at the time. So here's what happened. After the Black Summer fires, and I won't retell the events, they've been eloquently outlined today, but um, federal and state governments came together and uh, essentially uh, put together a package, a first stage called the Blur package, um, and the Blur stage one package was designed to go to councils and stimulate local economies. And we were approached by state public servants. So while the grants were jointly funded, federal and state, they're administered by the state bureaucracy. And we were approached. We didn't actually seek the grants because it was already weird. It was verbal. Everything was verbal. Not much was actually in writing. There wasn't criteria at the time. And we were approached by state government um, public servants and asked to make applications under Blur Stage 1 uh, for funding to our council to do two things, two or three things actually, to rebuild damaged infrastructure, to create new projects that build resilience in the community, things like escape routes, enhanced fire stations, etc. And third, projects that would be designed to stimulate our local economy. So the money would come in to the city, we applied for $5.4 million worth of projects, strung out from one end of the Blue Mountains to the other, designed to create either repaired infrastructure or resilience for future fires, all of which would stimulate local economies that have been hard hit by the fact that essentially we were closed for three months. Essentially. I mean, there were signs quite rightly down at Central Station saying, if you're thinking to go to the Blue Mountains, um, there's a there's a shit ton of bushfires up there and you might, you might consider whether it's safe or not to go. I don't think they said shit ton, but I think they certainly said there was a lot of bushfires up there and they warned people not to come. And this was, this was a legitimate warning. I mean, you all remember what was happening here. So we were approached and the approach came by way of a phone call to the council CEO, Dr. Rosemary Dillon. So she spoke to me at the time and what happened was we decided that we would put in a, a bunch of grants and we carefully, with the support of council, um, the governing body of council, and I want to acknowledge my, my deputy mayor is here today, Rhonda Hollywood, who was on council at the time. Councillor Claire West is also here, but happily for her, she came in after this horrible event occurred. Um, she's not been tainted by the experience, uh, although the aftermath's hit her. But um, we were asked to make these applications and we did. And we carefully designed them in consultation with the RFS um, to be um, projects that would repair infrastructure, build resilience and stimulate our local economy. And so that's what we did. And the grant submission was really professionally put together. I mean, it looks quite sexy. Uh, and we were actually working with public servants all the way through. It's not like we went away and, and wrote these grant applications in isolation. We actually worked daily with the public servants who'd invited us to apply. And we were sending drafts and updates constantly and getting feedback. The structure of the final 
submission was a structure not only informed by, but specifically guided by and supported by the public servants supposedly administering the grant process. And we were told when the final submission went in that it was an exceptional submission, that we could expect significant funds to flow to the Blue Mountains. Now, this was the grant process that came immediately after the fires. It was the most important time because stage two, and there was a funny comment about stage two, but stage two came 18 months after the fires when businesses had closed, jobs had gone, and COVID was upon us, and the rains had come upon us. To our surprise, uh, when the announcements were made, we got zero, not one cent. So what sort of things were we seeking? Well, I won't go through the full exhaustive list, but I'll give you a flavour. We were seeking to build better escape routes in the Blue Mountains off the highway. So roads that are currently back roads to be built up, reinforced, to be able to resist rain events, fire events, and to be able to provide escape routes to isolated communities if the highway's closed or they can't get to it. That was one. Enhancements to fire brigade stations across the mountains. What's not often known is that the council owns all the fire stations. You see, the state government will claim the RFS is their agency. Well, we provide the fire stations, we service the vehicles, and we pay a levy to make sure all works well too. So you'll probably find that a, about half the funding that goes to New South Wales, RFS, the Blue Mountains, actually comes from the council. So we had fire stations like one in Mount Riverview, where there were inadequate facilities for female firefighters. There are 150 firefighters there and one toilet and one basin. Those sorts of things mean that the, when you enhance those facilities, those fire stations are better able to cater for large numbers of firefighters, out-of-town firefighters, in frontline stations who can respond quickly. And we also wanted to put in place an advisory for businesses restructuring and rebuilding after the fires and advisory. Somewhere they could go after three months of being closed to get advice free of charge on how to rebuild their businesses. And there was a whole bunch of other projects as well. Augmenting town centres so that they would be more resilient to bushfires. And all of these projects would have gone to local tradies creating local jobs that would have, spent, would, have been, would have earned salaries that would have been spent or wages that would have been spent in our local economy. Local jobs, local wages, spent locally. And what does that do? It stimulates a shattered local economy. Not one project was funded. So I attended the parliamentary inquiry that was talked about today and I heard the Deputy Premier's evidence and we heard for the first time mentioned there that day this criteria which didn't exist at the time we were invited to apply. So with some other mayors I held a press conference at the back of Parliament House and said I smell a rat, I suspect that something was created in the Minister's office to knock Labor and non-coalition uh, electorates out of the funding pool. And guess what? When the Auditor-General issued that report, I was right. Now, I don't say this with any relish. I was absolutely shattered when the Auditor-General issued that report. I had hoped I was wrong. Because if there's one thing that shouldn't be politicised, that should be above politics, it's the agony caused to local communities by natural disasters. 
Natural disasters ought to be above politics. The Black Summer fires was a moment when ordinary Australians shone. shone. There were not enough state government agencies to deal with the climate change driven fires that burnt the whole nation. It was ordinary Australians who evacuated people from beaches on the south coast in their own boats, akin to Normandy. It was ordinary Australians in this area and others who went out day after day after day in yellow uniforms as RFS and other volunteers. Volunteers. Day after day after day. And it was local residents in the mounts who lost their homes and local infrastructure, local jobs, local economy that was shattered by the experience. And it was local people who were psychologically damaged by sitting with the threat of bushfires for months on end. And the families of local firefighters wondering if they were going to come back that day after their shift and seeing news bulletins about firefighters who didn't. So we had intended to play a role in helping our community recover and we were ripped off. Now, after that happened, a senior federal public servant, who I won't name, who's very well known and held a previous statutory role that was high profile, called me up when I did that press conference at the back of Parliament House and said, there are no rorts here. Federal public servant. There are no rorts here. And I said, well, I beg to differ. Um, and, uh, and this public servant insisted there were no rorts, but said, don't worry, mate, and we're not mates. Don't worry, mate, you'll do well in the second round. Implying to me that a political decision had been made to shut us up. Well, the second round, we did okay, not great, but not the grant funding applications we'd sought in round one. Other ones, but 18 months after the fires, 18 months after the businesses had closed, 18 months after the jobs had gone, 18 months of trauma compounded by, by that stage, COVID lockdowns and continual La Nina-driven rain. I'll finish there and say just this. I have a sneaking suspicion, and I could be wrong, that there's not a lot of coalition voters in this room today. <laughs> I could be wrong. I could be wrong. There might be, you know, a hidden 50% here, but I reckon there might even be one. You're not the audience we need to tell this story to. Next weekend there will be an election, and if you think it's going to be an easy coalition defeat, it's not. Go and look at the pendulum and see that the Labor Party needs swings in excess of 6% to win, and that doesn't happen easily. So go and tap on the shoulders of everybody you know, whether they live here or, or elsewhere, and tell them our story. And tell them, ask them, put this to them. If they believe the politicisation of bushfires is immoral, then perhaps for the first time in their lives, put these bastards last. Thank you for having me.
Thanks, Mark. That, that brilliantly rounded off the discussion. And um, yeah, I think we are preaching a little bit to the converted in this room, but yeah, spread the word.